0: one out, don't you? All that stuff, you're playing commercial programs on the non-commercial radio show. Here. <laughs> you're going to have to log that, you know. And uh, it's a very scary thing. I'll never forget the night that somebody, my mistake, put the John Gambling theme, and there were two heart attacks and one terrible, terrible stroke that was suffered by a lady up in Westport. There's an awful thing, but we're here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a It's a magnificent night I'll, I'll tell you this this kind of night with the wind and the snow and all the stuff blowing around, it either brings the roses to the cheeks. it uh, brings a touch of the uh, of the of the spook to that to that deep old soul. i I don't know uh, the New Yorker is a very funny thing. i do you do you have the, the vague feeling that you enjoy underneath it all what appears to be on the surface a disaster? That the reality of a disaster is very enjoyable because so much of our life is totally unreal. You know, it's very little to find that's real. And uh, you sit and you watch movies. I, I just I suspect that most people today live about 95 percent of their life enjoying vicariously other people's lives through the medium of plays, movies, books. Etc. Etc. And there's very little actual movement done. Although I suspect that a lot of people today define life as going to movies and plays and reading books. That's what life is, and uh, all the other jazz in between, like earning the dough to buy the books, to pay for the plays, is just a drag. You know, it's just the stuff you have to put up with so that you can see Arthur Miller's newest insight into real life. And uh, it uh, it is so. So when the day comes when it snows or when it rains, or when the flood hits, Uh, there's one of two reactions you can have. Either there is the wild, exultant thrill of suddenly finding yourself involved in something that actually gets your ankle wet, it actually uh, gets you stuck, or else there is the fantastic panic of a man who is totally abdicated and is now completely vicarious. The great panic where he immediately leaps into the nearest air-conditioned bar and sits there until next Wednesday when it's all melted, and he know, come back out again. I I believe that, really, I believe that our city one day will be in the form of a giant bubble over the whole city, and we will finally achieve what Freud always said we wanted to do anyway. It's a return to the original mother cocoon, and uh, that will be carefully heated to blood temperature or thereabouts, and it will be filled with Muzak, and there will be an artificial sun that can be turned off and on at will depending on the majority vote, of course. And once in a while there will be a symbolic storm that will be held in a stadium where we can all go and watch the storm and we'll get wet a little bit. Now, of course, the water will be very carefully controlled, filtered, and it will be heated so it won't get you too wet. Uh, have Have you read about this insane baseball field they're building down in in Houston? Sure, it's going to be the first totally enclosed ball field, which is the the final, this is going to be the final defeat of baseball, I suspect. that One of the great things about baseball, in fact, all sports, is not only the fact that you're fighting against the rules of the game, like trying to get the ball from your goal line to the other guy's goal line, but also the vagaries of nature, the turf, and all the rest of it that goes to make up the life we're living in. Uh, Did you notice uh, how incensed all the New York sports writers were that it was cold in Chicago when the Giants got their you-know-what whipped? Well, uh, somehow this was a plot by the Bears against the Giants. It was a terrible, rotten thing and should not have happened. It just shows the kind of skullduggery that is, is today goes on in professional athletics. Well, as a matter of fact, it was just as cold, I suspect, for the Bears. Uh, now, the the first thing you're going to say is they're used to it. Well, whoever gets used to kicking a football around at 10 degrees, I don't think they were any more than the Bears. But that's the way football is, friends. It is liable to be 10 degrees when you play. It is also liable to be 88 when you play. I'll never forget. I'll tell you about the time I played a football game when the temperature stood at 101. Oh, brother. Oh, gee. Oh, wow. Whew. Oh, man. I'll, I'll tell you, though. But nobody... Believed it was a plot. I mean, nobody says what we ought to do is put a bubble over the field and air condition it. Uh, it was 101 degrees, and it was the, it was that afternoon that convinced me that that I was more of the sedentary type. Uh, <laughs> it convinced me of a lot of stuff. First of all, I lost about 19 pounds. But uh, what made it even worse was that was that the, the uniforms of uh, that, that we had a particular day. Were of knit wool jersey. Now, now uh, today most of the most of the uniforms. Of course, you, you still find a lot of teams that will use that type of uniform. A light knit wool jersey, uh, jersey, is knit wool. Most of them, many of them, will have nylon. Uh, a lot of them will have very light cotton, the breakaway cotton. So if you grab a guy by the back of the neck and he's going for seventy-eight yards, the back just comes off. You know, it's the breakaway numbers, <laughs> that stuff. But uh, but we were wearing wool. Jerseys, and uh, you put wool jerseys on you. Put a pair of shoulder pads on you. You put sliding pads all over you, and you put hip pads on you, and then you put a pair of very tight football pants, which do not breathe, on you, and then you start running around at 101 degrees. Let me tell you, boy, I'd much rather play a football game at 10 above any day of the week because you generate a lot of ergs out there. You 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 get a lot of BTUs going just in general, running around. But uh, down in Houston, they are going to put this, uh, this ball field is going to be under, under glass. It's going to be totally controlled. Well, now, what, uh, this is going to do a lot of things. There is, there is nothing more delightful than to see an outfielder racing out for a long shot up near the center field wall someplace, and the wind has got it, and he's going one direction, and the ball is going the other. And then all of a sudden he realizes this, makes this frantic leap, dives, slides on his, on his face for 35 feet, and then makes a one-handed scoop. You won't see any of that in Houston anymore. It's all going to be about as exciting as a game of ping-pong played at the Y. Uh, really, it's, it's just going to take away one of the most important parts of the game. Then another part of the game, of course, is a pitcher who is fighting against the Heat. This is a great thing to watch. Say, Whitey Ford, he he wilts under real hot temperatures, and he really gets in trouble about the fifth or sixth inning. So, so a a ball club is sitting in its in its dugout, hoping that it gets hotter when they're playing his play. Come on, and, and Ford is out there sweating, and he's changing uniforms every three innings, and he puts on another one. And finally, the seventh inning, they get to him, and there is some excitement. Under the new system with the bubble, none of this will happen. Now a lot of people say that's improving baseball. No, it is improving baseball about the way I would say. Uh, well, it's like improving plays by taking away all all fluffs, taking away reality, breathing, walking around, clumping, uh, snorting, sweating, all the other stuff that happens in a real live performance. Take all of it away, and you got nothing. You just got this drab thing going on. But. Nevertheless, the minute that I heard that this was going to happen, I thought, well, that's good. First of all, you realize that there are many pitchers who need, who, who are wind pitchers. Nobody talks about wind pitchers. You know, Mike? Uh, you know what a wind pitcher is? A wind pitcher? Well, a wind pitcher is a pitcher who uses the wind. He's great again in, in, on windy days. He loves to use the wind. And, uh, and his curveball snaps off like a shot boy when he's pitching against the wind or in a crosswind. These pitchers, of course, uh, under, under the condition with the bubble, they're just going to be like anybody else. Then, there's, then there's, uh, there are a lot of things which, uh, which I remember uh, have gone out of sports because of this insistence on total control, absolute total control of the elements as well as control of the ball. I remember uh, watching ball games, for example, out at the Comiskey Park, uh, a ball game, a day ball game when uh, there would be a lot of trains outside, a lot of trains going around in the roundhouse out there and going up and down at the 12th Street station, and these great, great clouds of smoke and steam are coming in. Well, Mike Krivich, being, uh, being a center fielder for the White Sox and being an ex-coal miner from Pennsylvania was great at playing ball in the total dark. So, so Krivich could play the smoke better than any outfielder I ever saw. So they'd crack these long shots directly into the wind in center field in, in, in Comiskey Park, and it would disappear. You'd be sitting back at first base or something, and you'd just see the ball, and it would disappear into the smoke, just disappear into the fog and the smoke, and you would see this tiny figure drifting around down there. He would play the smoke and the fog the way Willie Mosculine, believe me, can play a three-cornered shot in, in balk line billiards. He'd, he'd play the smoke, literally. Well, uh, we, we, there were, this, this is dead. Forget it. When uh, I suppose somebody was up there defending the Giants. <laughs> well, well, uh, well. Uh, there's there's a lot of problems here. I uh, I don't I don't know whether to, to tap dance or not tonight because you know sometimes you you uh, where are you going to start? Uh, it's difficult to know where to start when uh, if you, if you work in the ter- let's say satire. It's for a long time now. Satire has become increasingly difficult to do. Have you have you read recently in in newspapers? They say where. Where are the great satirical comedies in the, uh, in the theater? Well, I'll tell you where they are. They're on the front page. Uh, because it is impossible to satire a satire. It really, it literally is. And so uh, the final comedy will be eventually, I suspect, a total fantasy that will have nothing whatsoever to do with real life. Uh, a typical example of that is Oh Dad, Poor Dad. Which is a comedy that does not refer to anything that ever happens. It's just a comedy. It just stands out there. Because how are you going to do a great satirical cook? Here, now, here's an example. Now, how are you going to satirize this? Now, if I if I read you a, a here is a uh, an ad for perfume. It's called Gold Water. Gold Water. Do we have any? Uh, uh, please, would you give me some? Uh, uh, no, give me the, the the tape over there. There, the big one. There, see the round one. The tape. That's right. Give me give me cut two there, Tony. I will need patriotic music for this one. Cause, uh and I'm not going to, to needle it at all. I'm just going to read it straight and I will uh ask you how in the devil can you satirize this. Speaking of the devil, this is W O R A M and F M, New York. And uh speaking of satires, self imposed division, we'll be here <laughs> until until midnight. I sometimes, you know. You listen real closely to the station. You wonder who's putting who on. Well, uh, you all set out there? Uh, you got it in there, Tony. All righty. It's the second cut. We we must have all set now. All right. right. All righty, Roe. While you're out, up to that, I see. All set now. All right. Now we read this advertisement in its entirety and exactly the way it is printed in. All right. All set. Uh, patriotic music. Let's go. Bring it up. Bring it up all the way. Now, let's go. Mm-hmm. Goldwater, a cologne for Americans. How to smell very nice. Splash on Goldwater. Spicy, partisan, and pungently American. Gold water is actually an expensive department store fragrance, conservatively priced at $1.25 a bottle. Order gold water for yourself, your friends, and at least one liberal. Also great for raising funds for your favorite organization. Gold water, the cologne for Americans. And uh, now, if you think that I am being funny, that is from that is from a very serious political magazine. Uh, it is it is uh, the New Guard, the official magazine of the Young Americans for Freedom. This is a notoriously deep-thinking outfit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, how can you satirize it? I mean, what are you going to do? You see, there you are. You can only stand on scratch. That, that That anything that I would try to do about that whole scene would be paled in this insignificance by the reality of the scene itself. now uh, how i i guess I guess the satirist works best under conditions of a certain kind of absolute morality. Uh, for example, I suspect that during the eighteenth centuries, eighteenth and early nineteenth centuries, uh, that the, that the uh, scene was a different scene, that, the, that the, uh, the kind of morality that was not only implied but was actual in most of the lives of the day lend themselves to satire when these uh, moralities were at war with the actuality of what was going on. In other words, a guy like, uh, say, somebody like, uh, oh, I suppose uh, Voltaire would be a good example that Voltaire took a society which had a set of basic moral principles uh, that it professed and to a large degree attempted to live up to and then he held those uh... principles up on one side and then painted on the other side of the page the uh... picture of what actually was happening and then you had satire that was satire uh, it is very difficult, then, to satirize a, a, a society where there are no moral absolutes. Very difficult. Take Swift, now. Uh, certainly, when Swift was writing about the English culture of his day, that England had a set of really uh, stringent moral laws, rules, mores, attitudes, and so on, by which it lived. So when Swift talked about his, his adventures among the weenonyms and the yahoos, his adventures uh, among the Lilliputians. Uh, Swift was was comparing again the the uh, the morality of an of an established thing, of, a, of that everyone had agreed upon, and attempted to live up to, and then the attitudes and the actions that were displayed in reality. So here you had satire. It was very, very fine, but it's very Im- almost impossible to uh, to do satire. All you can do is read out of the paper, and you've done satire literally. Now, I'm sure that a lot of angry people are going to call in and say, what did I, I, this rotten thing I did about gold? No, I didn't say anything bad about Goldwater. I'm merely quoting to you from one of our more serious type pieces of, of, uh, this is a Goldwater paper. And uh, so uh, how can you satirize it? I suppose uh, to show you uh, some uh, some of the more interesting kinds of touchiness and sicknesses in our time, that if you read a piece out of the paper verbatim you will get angry calls from people saying you're being un-American absolutely you're reading a piece that somebody the other night for example I read a quotation by a guy that was he was quoted in the New York Times I merely read the quotation and and the next day I I had at least a half dozen letters from people saying that I was a rotten un-American communist probably and all I did was quote him that's all and and so that uh that uh, that presents some very interesting problems now now this thing uh, this thing here uh, now now here, uh, somehow somehow i i I know a guy who's been in touch with me, he's constantly trying to get me to mention his products on the air, which I will not do, but I know a guy who has the all-purpose political demonstration company going. now, he will turn out, yes, this is the truth. He turns out stickers for any political party. Like, he'll turn out a big red sticker with black letters that simply says, Shame. Now, <laughs> and, and you can buy these stickers. He, he has conservative placemats. Yes, he has conservative swizzle sticks. Uh, he, has, he has, yes, he even has, if, if you really want to know some of the more interesting kind of things he has, he has, he has conservative ice cube forms. So you can get little ice cubes that make the head of Barry Goldwater. And you can serve them to your friends. Now, to me, this, this, is, this, is, a, and, and this is a tremendous piece of satire. And yet, he doesn't think it's satire. He is providing a service for people who, who interpret patriotism in those terms. Now, now that's, that's an interesting kind of patriotism. I don't know what I would do if, I, if somebody handed me a drink. And in there is floating around a little ice Lyndon Johnson. I <laughs> I don't know how I would handle that, Manhattan. You see, actually, but but nevertheless, this is considered. And if I say something about that, everyone thinks I'm, I'm be- becoming unpatriotic. Yet, as a matter of fact, I think the people who buy those those uh, things that they put on the back of their cars are being truly unpatriotic. I really do. I think that somebody who reduces uh, political, uh, our political or or uh, social problems to, to to the status of that kind of thing are being fifty times more unpatriotic than a guy who might walk around with a sign and demonstrate. He's at least taking a legitimate stand. But uh, the the all-purpose political demonstration company (laughs) can provide you with such such little doozies, it can provide you with such little interesting things as a leopard-skin vest. And on the back of the leopard-skin vest it has a thing that says, stop out rotten fools. The word is something else. I've just uh, censored it for you. And underneath it, you can put your own particular organization, which is for or against rotten fools. It's pretty hard to know. Uh, there is an outfit that is, uh, that is for stamping out damn fools, but the unfortunate part of it is that all of them that I've heard quoted are that, which uh, which bothers me very much. I know a couple, but uh, this this gets quite complicated in the end. And, and so when when you're living in a time, it's it's uh, are you. Of course most people are familiar with the with the fall of Rome and uh, what what happened made things pretty funny at the last stages of of the decline of that particular empire was that that empire got to the point where it was it was satirizing itself and it didn't it didn't necessarily know it that the art of the later days of the Roman empire when it was beginning to disappear in the mud was a poor parody of of art that had existed when the when the empire was at its peak. Uh, it was a poor parody of it, and uh, I'm sure that they were more serious about it. Oh, they were really serious about it. Now, a guy who who bought a, a Lincoln sticker or a uh, an Abraham Lincoln tie pin in 1860 was a very different breed of cat than a guy who was buying a Barry Goldwater ice cube maker. Uh, <laughs> It's a very different breed of cat, and he's buying it for a very different reason that uh, then you will find is evident in most of this stuff. And so I'm curious what is going to happen when uh, eventually the uh, the self-parody that we're involved in becomes the reality. I'm just uh, some speeches I have heard recently are so close to parody that I, I shudder to think, what would, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, if you try to parody a political speech, you often make more sense than the guy who is doing the speech in reality. In fact, I, I did a speech here uh, one night a few years ago. Do you recall that? Were you around here that time? I had uh, one of, really learned a lesson about this thing. I, I took all the giant clattering clichés from about 25 political speeches that uh, I'd heard that night, and I wrote them down, one after the other, with no sense whatsoever. Each one cleverly put in rotation to negate the one before it, which means that on one, uh, in one sentence I would take a fantastically uh, honest, completely patriotic, unwavering stand for unlimited unlimited uh, labor unions they go swing quill and in the next one i would take a stand an unlimited stand in favor of completely negating the labor bosses and and so uh what i what i did was put this thing together and i i got a i got a record uh, we got some sound effects records of a giant crowd a lot of people cheering and uh, drums beating and i put this political speech on the air without any any uh pre uh, warning that it was a, that it would just put it on. You know, it sounded like a guy giving us political speech. And I was standing back about nine feet on the microphone screaming bloody murder with my veins sticking out my ears, popping, sweating, drinking water and banging with the gavel when the crowd would get out of hand. Well, what happened was, as soon as we went off the air, the station was deluged with people who wanted to vote for this idiot. Well, <laughs> that made me a little worried, you know. I really began to worry. And and uh, and it 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 was not and it was not from people who were the fanatical uh, outside fringes who will always go for a guy who has simple solutions to everything. These were all intelligent people, or at least they sounded that way. Uh, uh, what was it that Harry Truman recently says he'd love? Uh, was it Harry Truman who says he'd like to raise the voting age to thirty-five? <laughs> oh boy. And at the truth uh, that, that you wonder, you wonder sometimes about some of the things that I, I'm curious about a man who will go out and deliberately buy a uh, a thing to put on the back of his car that uh, from the All Purpose Political Demonstration Corporation of America. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, what kind of political thinking he does? Does he do any at all? Is there any thinking involved, or is it all pure emotion? Is, is, it, is it emotion? Do we, do we often confuse the two terms? Emotion with, uh, <laughs> with uh, thinking. Does a guy have an emotional response and then spend the next 28 years of his life trying to think out a reason for it? But he sticks with the original response? I suspect that's closer to it, and that's called thinking it out. Uh, he's, there's no point of thinking it out. He just wants to find rationalizations for the, for the insanity that he's already picked out, the thing he's going to stick with. And I am I'm, uh, I'm very curious because some of the some of the candidates are making wild statements. I think I think you're going to find today I think you're going to find an interesting election where uh, I think you're going to find you're going to find uh, almost uh rational thinking is going to be opposed this time to tremendous uh almost unbelievable uh wishful thinking. I think you're going to find two great <laughs> great sides at war and I and with the way America's going, I don't know which one I'd bet on. I seriously don't. Because that, that I, I, uh, cause, uh, the ability of most people today to face the simplest problems in their lives of reality, of the reality nature, are very, very, it's very limited. Uh, let's take this smoking situation. It's quite evident that, uh, that there's a lot of things going. Have you noticed the, the unbelievable amount of rationalization that's going on? Uh, about this smoking thing. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, it, it, how could Swift how could Swift satirize this? Where a senator gets up and he says we ought to put five million dollars in the kitty to to uh, start a campaign to dispel doubts about smoking. <laughs> Did you hear that great one? And also to start a campaign to find good things out about smoking which we can advertise. Well, now, that's like, that, believe me, that's that's like a guy who, who uh, <laughs> that's like, in many ways, that's like a guy who, say, sells, uh, let's say he sells, uh, let's say, machine guns. And there's been a lot of bad publicity on machine guns. You know that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of guys have died from machine guns. and They make a lot of noise, and they, they make an awful hole in people. It's this terrible thing goes on with machine guns. And so he he puts in a big campaign to to show that machine guns have a lot of good points. Like they're shiny, uh, they're very nice to hold. They have a nice smooth quality to them, and uh, yes, and they, you can you can give them friendly names like Clarence. You can call them things like that, and they make a nice click when you cock them. And they they're fun to play with. You can take them apart and put them back together again. And you can oil them, and you can spend a lot of your evenings. Just having good, honest, clean fun, taking Clarence apart and putting them back together again. Well, <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> this is the kind of scene we have here today. And I'm, I'm sure that, that a nation which will spend all of its time rationalizing in, uh, a few obvious truths, which even the most involved rationalist knows are true, he, he can't, there's a little secret thing inside of him that keeps saying, Oh, yeah. Which, well, I don't know. They haven't proved anything yet. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The voice keeps saying, Oh, you think you're fooling, Charlie? They haven't proved any. <coughs> they haven't proved anything yet. <coughs> what are you? You've been coughing for 37 years. Oh, I've just got a slight cold. <coughs> Can't get rid of this cold. <coughs> and it goes on. Well, it's a kind of a rationalization that, uh, that I think we have a very special affinity for and one which uh, we're not going to easily dispel. Uh, one, of the, one of the most fascinating rationalizations I heard along this line is this, the deep thinker that got up and says, well, uh, this was a senator too, he says, well, uh, the automobile kills almost as many people as, as they claim that lung cancer kill less you The automobile kills that many, crying out loud. Well, of course, uh, this is one of those great, fabulously uh, ill-conceived analogies. The automobile serves obviously a useful purpose and it has a true function. (laughs) Uh, And in addition to that, the the automobile, I'm sure, that more people ride in cars in any given year than smoke cigarettes. There can't be any doubt of that, that almost everybody rides in an automobile at one time or another during the year, even if he lives way somewhere in the hills back of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. But uh, there's large numbers of people who don't smoke at all. And uh, so, so the the analogy is very bad, but but nevertheless, it, it, there will be millions of people who will take that and will hold it up as though somehow, if you're going to eliminate the cigarettes, you better eliminate the automobile. Well, I'll tell you, this is probably true that, that more people, more people were were killed undoubtedly by muggings last year than were killed by let's say uh uh oh let's say uh, infected toes. Well, now, <laughs> uh, it, it would be logical then to say that what we should do is uh, somehow we should stop research on infected toes, because muggings are around. The two have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, It's completely, completely uh, at, at, uh, at odds. But then, then this kind of rationalization goes pretty deeply into our, into our time. It's easy to believe that a thing we don't like is bad. It's very easy. If, if if somebody proved that what really does cause cancer is, let us say, uh, anchovies, I'm sure that you would find nobody would doubt it. In a second, everyone would accept it automatically. There would be... no Nobody would be yelling and screaming and saying, we've got to investigate this more. I'm not going to continue to eat anchovies. No! They would drop anchovies like a red-hot poker. Because <laughs> there's really not a, a big, deep investment, personally or otherwise, in anchovies. But... Uh, but uh, leave it be something that you really somehow are hung on, and you will find every possible rationalization for an irrational position. And I suspect this is true also of politics, that a guy will will fight like mad to to uh, to find a rational position for a basically irrational situation. He will find he'll he'll struggle. Have you have you read any of the the insanely idiotic speeches that guys will give? in uh the the deeply segregated states to rationalize segregation it's unbelievable well now we happen to be able to see that because most of us i assume do not hold these positions and are not guilty of that kind of sophistry so we can see it but i'm curious uh, how much sophistry other people are guilty of i heard one guy uh defend and what bothers me this is a this is a commentator. this is really what bothers me a commentator uh i I heard a political speech by a guy who is one of the candidates and it was it was a completely irrational speech about most of the major issues completely irrational in the sense that it was it was a wishful thinking it was a it was a kind of speech where where the solutions were so simple that it was frightening. You wonder why nobody thought of them before you know. Just so easy, nothing. And anything, any possible giant situation could be taken care of in one sentence. Take care of Russia, one sentence, no problem with that. Take care of unemployment, one one sentence, no problem. Taxes, that's two sentences, no problem. Just do away with them. Uh, you know, and so on up and down the line. And I, I pointed this out to this commentator. I says, this is, this is, uh, this is... He says, no, he's all for that. And I said, why? He says, because it's a breath of fresh air. I said, a breath of fresh air? This is really muddying the air, you see, by bringing in uh, what seems to be uh, the simple, easy solutions in the world where easy solutions have always resulted in bloodshed, if not worse. Uh, And yet, that seems to be, to a lot of people, a breath of fresh air. As a matter of fact, uh, the interesting thing that you find with most dictators, going back to perhaps the original ones, uh... where there was their tremendous ability to oversimplify the 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 ability to simplify a complex solution a complex situation into one or two slogans has always been very attractive even in our own private lives i mean there's no question about it most of us would would love to think that uh... that our life could be solved in seven minutes a day uh... and do it twice a week and by sunday you'd be a success this is a real thing. We we all love to believe this. Oh yeah, yeah, there are many. You can always sell an article to a magazine called the Easy Eat All You Want Diet. Just two minutes a day, shed pounds a week. Well, I mean this is this is a, this is a simple, easy uh, thing to sell. I know this as a writer that that you can always sell an article like that. An article says, "Are you popular?" Well, then move on, friend. This is for the person who is unpopular. Are you unpopular? Have you have you really had trouble tapping those hidden well of beautiful, fantastic personality that lie within you? Well, all you have to do is spend two minutes a day for one week. And by the end of that week, already your life will be picking up. And so, you know, no problem. No problem. So immediately people will read this and... No one bothers to, to, to go back to the guy one week later and say, well, what happened, Fred? He's, and either does he, because he's busily reading the next magazine now. And he susa- sustains himself from week to week by reading the magic panaceas. Somehow reading a panacea gives you the sense of having participated in a panacea. But I know many fat people who, who uh, gain solace by reading books on reducing. I know one fat guy who has a, a truly, a five-foot shelf, and it is growing as well as waistline, but it is growing every week, and every reducing book that comes out, he reads it like other guys read mysteries, and he sits and chuckles over, over a particularly well-done calorie chart. He will chuckle over, over, over a well-turned phrase about desserts, and all the while, he's shoveling in the triple-molded milks while he's reading. Well, now, now, what is what is the point here? What is the, what is the problem here? Well, it is a problem of reality versus ambition, ideal, and the dream. Uh, many moralists are like this. Many, many a moralist is tremendously angry about what society is doing. And all the while, this clown is knocking down on his income tax. He's stealing stamps out of a drawer. He's got four or five things going in apartments up on the Upper East Side. But he will... Of course rationalize that away. That is not the he won't even rationalize. He just usually just cuts his life into two separate areas and it splits it right down the middle. And I and yet the uh, the, the this has been a common problem among moralists for a long time. And many people are confused by this because most people's lives in general are lived pretty much by a single standard uh that that is the thing that surprises uh, many a writer whose life generally is a double standard life uh, by the very nature of writing this almost is a foregone problem foregone conclusion so uh, often a writer is is scared and surprised to find that the truck driver who says Well if I met one of them guys I'd hit him that ten minutes later he meets one and hits him this is very confusing to him because he lives the way he talks he lives. and uh, he, he does not have the subtlety nor the sophistication to speak one way and live another. That's why the, the Indian used to refer to the white man as he speaketh with forked tongue, referring to that propensity of the super-civilized man. Many a really strong liberal is a, is a fanatic about paying his help, He's just rotten. I know. I know many a liberal who who just he's so wild about liberal causes that it takes up all his time. He forgets to pay the people who work for him. And and I'll never forget one little incident that occurred to me. A, a, a guy I know who was a who was who was not only a, a big liberal but he was he was uh, nationally known as this. He was a, a, a giant liberal. Uh, I happened to work one time for this guy, and he walked in one afternoon, got the entire staff together, and says, "Look." I'm going to make one statement here. If any of you guys even think of bringing a union in here, I'll bust you and you'll never work in the business again. He was a top union man. <laughs> Turned out his heel and walked out. Well, I i, uh, I well, I, I was young and innocent in those days, and I assumed that a man uh, literally lived the way he talks. You'll find generally it's quite the opposite. And the more incoherent a man is, the more often he will live the way he is. He just. He doesn't know that there is a way, uh, a surrogate, that you can produce. So, so you, you, you wonder about uh, people who, uh, who believe the dream, who really do believe it, and um, who assume uh, that it's so simple and so easy. Uh, Dean Rusk, I heard Rusk speak uh, one time. In fact, I saw Dean Rusk on a television show, and Rusk, Rusk was discussing that problem in, in, a, in a sort of a tangential way and he was saying that, we, that Americans have a belief that it really is strong in them, that we not only can control history, but somehow history is a thing which we have created and that, that we can stay on top of it all the way down the line, That that there's no such thing as, uh, as, as history that exists outside of the controllable areas that we ourselves as Americans can participate in. That, uh, and, and for that reason, you'll see that whenever anything happens anywhere in the world, Immediately, 45 guys will jump up and holler, who sold out Yugoslavia? Well, nobody sold out, you know. Who, uh, what, why didn't we do something about Slovobia? Well, could it be that Slovobia has a mind of its own? We won't concede any of these things. We will not. We just will not. Many guys won't. Many guys will not concede that, that, that China might have a, entirely uh, a mind of its own, and it may be totally against our mind. You know, don't wanna, somebody sold it out. Somebody sold them a bill of goods. And I'm not, believe me, condoning China. But the belief that we have always in American politics is the belief, and it underlies so many of the chief complaints that we have against the, the... Both liberals and conservatives do this, Is the is the myth of controlling history. I suspect this is because, among all the world's peoples, history has not occurred much to Americans. We have been involved in very little history. But if you come from a country, that let's say let's say Lebanon, where there's been 75 crusades running both directions through your country, <laughs> and, and the machine guns come from both sides, and generally by the same guys with different suits on, in the end, after 2,000 years of this, you have no illusions about history, none whatsoever. It would be very hard to convince a Frenchman, believe me, that history is controllable. Uh, he has seen a lot of a lot of track meets going through his backyard. And uh, one minute, uh, you know, one minute, uh, it's funny, you know, you, you have mortar uh, emplacements under your front porch every couple of years. You begin to have an attitude towards history, which could be a little more realistic than the attitude which most Americans have. We've been able to control, so again, I suppose we confuse destiny with history. There are, again, two different problems. Sure, a nation can say to itself, well, I'm going to be a democracy and I'm going to make money. That's fine. But that does not necessarily mean that they can control Yugoslavia or Upper Slobovia. Very difficult. Very difficult. <laughs> and yet you're going to find many a political speech based on that one premise that the entire world is our oyster, and if we don't control it, it's because somebody is lousing up. Somebody is selling out. Somebody is not putting the money where it should go. Somebody is and so on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Ad nauseum is perhaps the best word. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. In love and in war, he came, he saw, he conquered. Don't miss the thundering spectacle of Caesar the Conqueror in color, Sunday night at 8 on Channel 9's The Big Preview, followed by the New York television premiere of A Man Escape, your Sunday night double feature on Channel 9. This is WOR AM and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. Stay tuned now for the Long John Nebel Show. Time at the tone, 12 o'clock.